0: You're listening to audio from Mercy's Door Community Church in Mescouta, Illinois. If you'd like to get more information about Mercy's Door, we'd love for you to connect with us on Facebook or check us out at mercysdoor.org. Well, if you guys have been here before, I've mentioned that one of my favorite classes in undergrad was a class called Logic. Uh, In the class, we essentially got to learn how to argue more persuasively, which was like right up my alley. Right. It was the one class that if my parents got to pick my college classes, they would have ensured I did not take because they had had enough of the arguing already. But in the class, not only did we learn kind of uh, how to argue the pieces and parts of persuasion and argument and discussion, but one of the topics that we discussed was a topic called paradoxes. All right, so paradoxes at their kind of fundamental level are statements that seem contradictory. But when you drill down, when you really investigate them, you find that there's truth underneath. Let me give you a couple examples of paradoxes, phrases that we use all the time. Less is more. Right? Less is more. How? I don't even know how that works or or maybe you've heard this one before the enemy of my enemy is my friend Mm. that's typically what I do with paradoxes because I don't understand them this is the beginning of the end so it's the end of the beginning if you don't risk anything you risk everything right I love these statements I'm pretty sure parents use these all the time when they don't know what to say to their kids. I looked these up this week, and I've used them all. Right? You can only earn... I haven't used this one. You can only earn money by spending it. I did not use that one with my children. The more you give... I did use this one. The more you get... Even famous philosophers use these. Gandhi once said... Whatever you do in life will be insignificant. So it is very important that you do it. Mm. That's what you get when you haven't eaten for a long time. (laughs) Socrates said, I know one thing that I know nothing. My favorite philosopher, Scarface, said, Me, I always tell the truth, even when I'm lying. Another one of my favorite philosophical renditions, Shawshank Redemption, said I had to come to prison to be a crook and perhaps the peace, de resistance. The first rule of Fight Club is don't talk about Fight Club. The second rule of Fight Club, don't talk about Fight Club. I don't actually know if that's a paradox. I just wanted to have a reference to Fight Club in the sermon this morning, and so we did that. See, paradoxes are oftentimes used in order to try and encapsulate something that's complex, but to use simple terms in order to drive home the point. Right? They help us to see how things work, which is that things are convoluted, and yet there are truths underneath. And paradoxes, they cause us to, to stop, to, to ponder to truly consider if we understand the way that things work. Today, in the passage that we're looking at in John chapter 3, Jesus uses a few different paradoxes to try and explain the truth of how the kingdom of God works. Jesus, over the last few passages, has entered into a season of public ministry where he is giving the world, the watching world around him, signs that he truly is the Messiah, the Savior, the anointed King that they have waited for. A few weeks ago, we looked at Jesus at the wedding in Cana. And we saw how he gave the sign that he was the miracle worker. The one who could do unfathomable things things. Last week, Pastor Adam taught as we watched Jesus march into the temple and claim authority over the very temple of God, and in fact, claimed that he was the fulfillment of the temple. And today, we're going to watch Jesus continue his signs, but this time through his power in teaching and his insight into the very kingdom of God itself. So here's what I want us to do. I want us to look at three paradoxes that Jesus explains about the kingdom of God. That we, like Nicodemus, might come to understand the kingdom. And even more so, that we might come to understand Jesus. Here are the three three paradoxes. First, the kingdom is impossible to enter, yet promised and assured. Impossible to enter, yet promised and assured. Two, the kingdom is exclusive and restrictive, yet open to everyone. Exclusive and restrictive, yet open to everyone. And finally, the kingdom requires a simple action that is utterly unfathomable. The kingdom requires a simple action that is utterly unfathomable. Let's look at the first. It is impossible, yet assured. John picks us up with Jesus, and he tells us that he is meeting, in verse 1, with a man named Nicodemus. He says, Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus. He was a ruler of the Jews, and this man came to Jesus by night. And he said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Nicodemus, we're told, is a Pharisee, and beyond just being a Pharisee, he is a ruler of the Jews. Likely what that specifically meant is that Nicodemus was a part of the Sanhedrin, the the ruling council, if you will. He was a senator of the Jews. This was a man that carried deep weight and responsibility and was also seen as one of the most learned men when it came to the things of God. And we're told that Nicodemus comes to Jesus to ask him some questions, and he comes at night. Now, a lot of different scholars have kind of tried to ascertain what John was trying to convey when he talks about Nicodemus coming in darkness or at night. It may be that Nicodemus truly was interested, intrigued, even desirous of knowing Jesus. But because of his position within the Pharisees, felt like he couldn't do that in daylight or public. John oftentimes uses darkness or night to contrast between light. Darkness is evil. It's where things are hidden. And light is of God where things are in the truth. Perhaps it was that John was trying to convey that Nicodemus really was coming in darkness. But he was about to meet the light. But whatever the circumstance, we know that John finds this to be a vitally important conversation. Nicodemus uh, begins with pleasantries. He says to Jesus, Rabbi, a word for teacher. Now now here's, here's the important part. Jesus was not by any pharisaical tradition a rabbi right it's like me walking in or being on a an airplane and someone saying is there a doctor in the room and me going i'm a doctor and they go oh okay you studied at med school no but i did stay at a holiday inn express last night and them going okay right like we have standards around titles that we give to people But Nicodemus is is, is saying to him, hey, Jesus, I see you. There's something going on. Perhaps even you're a more true rabbi than the ones that we qualify through our own standards. He said, you must be from God because I've heard of the signs that you have shown and no one can do the things that you have done. And then we read in verse 3, something that we tend to skip over. It says, "Jesus answered him, Truly, truly I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God." Now, if you've if you've been in church long enough or if you've read this passage before, here's what we do when we read scripture. We just kind of assume that everything makes sense and so we just keep rolling along. But I want you to stop for a second and think of the way that the conversation just unfolded nicodemus shows up and he essentially says in a very polite way hey jesus and then jesus responds i say to you that no one can see the kingdom unless he is born again right like nicodemus probably should have been like were you talking to somebody else because i haven't even asked a question yet right what is Jesus doing? Well, remember what Adam, Pastor Adam, taught at the end of chapter 2. It says this in verse 24 and 25. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people. He needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Right? It's like Nicodemus. This was the image that came into my mind. Nicodemus is like, he's like a middle school boy. And he sees a girl out in the hallway that he kind of likes. And he, so he goes up and he's like, um, uh, how, 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 would, how would you think of that Spanish test? And it's as if the girl looked him in the face and said, I love you too. Right? Like he bl- what? Did I say that out loud? I didn't even think I did. I was still warming up. I had a long line to get to that point. Right? Nicodemus is like, he's warming up to Jesus. He's like, hey, listen, you're a great teacher. I saw you over there, you know, and then Jesus is in. Why? Because Jesus knows what's in the heart of man. One of my favorite lines of all time, Charles Spurgeon, I don't know if he actually said it or if it just was attributed to him. But it said that one time he was praying with a young man and this young man was just using this beautiful poetic language and he's going on and on and on about the greatness of God and His glory and how it's manifested in all these different ways and Spurgeon stops him and he looks at him and he goes, call Him Father and ask Him for what you need. It's like, stop, stop it with all this other junk. Call Him Father because He is and ask Him for what you want. He knows what's in your heart. And Jesus skips past everything else and He gets to the real question that Nicodemus wants to know. Jesus, how do I enter into the kingdom? Jesus answers with something that sounds nonsensical. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom. That word again... In Greek, can be translated two different ways. Again, repeated, or above. And as we'll find, Jesus is likely referring to both of those. But Nicodemus only seems to hear the one. The again, repeated. How can one be born again? What in the world does that mean? Nicodemus says to him, How can a man be born again when he is old? Can he enter in a second time into his mother's womb and be born again? I mean, immediately the answer of Jesus is awkward for Nicodemus and incredibly painful for his poor mother. Like, nobody wants to consider this. I've not given birth one time, and I wouldn't do it with a small baby, but not a grown man. Right? Nicodemus is like, Jesus, you got to give me something else. okay? I was super excited to talk to you and ask this question, and I don't understand what you're talking about. Right? Jesus might, have, might as well have said, Nicodemus, you can enter the kingdom when pigs fly. He says there's, there's no chance. Is essentially what Nicodemus hears. Now, again, I, I, when we read Scripture, we want to enter into the people that we're reading about. This is a devastating answer by Jesus to Nicodemus. The whole Pharisee tribe was founded upon one main goal. Their belief that the reason that the Messiah, the Savior, had not come, that the promised land had not been reinstated to Israel, was because the people of God were not yet holy enough. They they joined together, together. they dedicated their entire life's pursuit in being able to get themselves and Israel into the kingdom of God. That was everything to them. And so Nicodemus shows up with the biggest desire that he has spent his life pursuing and says to Jesus, please, am I on the right track? How do I do this? Do you have even the slightest hint for me? And Jesus says something that to Nicodemus's ears sounds like, can't do anything it's impossible is that what Jesus is saying is Jesus telling Nicodemus that he has no chance to enter into the kingdom of heaven on one hand yes I remember several years ago I learned for the first time I think probably watching like wild Kratz or something on PBS because I have a lot of kids I learned how a caterpillar turns into a butterfly. If you've been to Mercy's Door before, you've heard this story at least four or five times. It's one of like seven analogies I have. If you don't know, let me tell you how a caterpillar turns into a butterfly. Right, so most of us know caterpillar, but this is the story I think I heard. I blame it on my parents. Caterpillar, it's it's going along, it's living a pretty good life. It gets tired, so it climbs up a tree, And in order to get, like, comfy, it it spins a cocoon, and then it falls asleep, and then it wakes up with wings, and it flies off. Right? Wrong. Caterpillars climb up a tree. They spin this little chrysalis, this cocoon. Then they begin to excrete an enzyme that eats them from the the outside in. They turn into a goo- of genetic material and then reform as a butterfly. Include that in your children's story tonight. Okay, kids will sleep great. I always thought that a butterfly was like an enhanced caterpillar, right? Like every caterpillar ascribed to one day randomly sprout wings and be like super caterpillar, aka butterfly. But a butterfly, I'm going somewhere with this, don't worry. A butterfly is not a better caterpillar. A butterfly is a dead caterpillar. A butterfly is not different to a caterpillar in degrees. It's different in type. And Jesus is telling Nicodemus to enter into the kingdom is not simply that exists for far better men. To enter into the kingdom is for dead men that have been born again. It's not a matter of degrees. It's a matter of type. Gosh, Jesus, that sounds impossible. How could we ever enter in Well, Jesus tells us that though it is impossible, it's also promised. He goes on to say this. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom. And Jesus continues in verse 5. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is Spirit. What is Jesus saying? The church has oftentimes said, hey, see, you got to be baptized in water, and then you got to like, have the Holy Spirit. And those are true things. But Jesus is very clearly referencing back to a promise that God had given to the people of God in the midst of their captivity. Listen to what it says in Ezekiel chapter 36. Therefore, say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, it's not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act. It's for my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the God, when through you I vindicate my holiness. Hear this, I will take you from the nations. I will gather you from all the countries. I will bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you. And then you shall be clean from all your uncleanness. From the idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart. I will give you a new spirit that I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. It must be born of water and the Spirit. Who could ever do that? The Lord God can, and it's just not just that He can, but He promised that He will. Remember back to the beginning of John 1, it says, But to all those who did receive Him, who believed in His name, He gave the right to be called children of God. Those who were born not of blood nor of the flesh, but of who? But of God. God is not just the keeper of the kingdom. He's not just the king and the judge, but He is the author and the promise keeper. Sinful humanity cannot enter into the holy kingdom of God only one who is born from above, who has been cleansed with water and reborn by the Spirit. And we can do none of those things, but our gracious God can. And grace upon grace, he has promised us that he will. It's impossible to enter the kingdom and yet promised and assured. And this kingdom is exclusive, yet it's also open to everyone. After we moved down here to Mescouta, I was still working for my previous job up in the Chicago area. And so I had to travel back up there pretty often. And it was during the summertime. And so whenever I would go up there, I would try and get a big enough hotel, which is a big hotel for my family, but a big enough one that all of us could go up there. And so I'd go to work for a few hours, do what I needed to do, and then come back to the hotel. And we'd think of all sorts of activities to, to keep ourselves busy There was one day that it was particularly windy outside and so as i was coming back i stopped at a store and i got like three of like the dollar fifty kites or whatever it was right and so right next to the hotel there was no park or anything but there was a a huge parking lot and it was surrounded by trees and we went out there and our three oldest kids were so excited to play with kites they are, are apparently not well loved uh, but they were super super excited to play with kites so we went out there and we got them all unfolded and and, and we went Noah, our oldest was first and so i was like all right buddy here's what you gonna do you're gonna you're gonna hold it and i'm gonna run and you're gonna kind of run with me and then you're gonna throw it up in the air as dad runs all right don't let go he's like okay i got it so i i got it and I, well, i'm running and then he, the kite goes up and he's got it he's got it and the wind catches it and just whoosh, right out of his hands dive bombs into the tree is beautiful kite gone forever? And so then I said, okay, Henry, your turn. <laughs> um, and so and that's not true. I didn't do that. Uh, so then we, I said, same thing to Henry. Henry, hold on. It's windy, which is good because it'll fly. Hold tight. So we go, kite goes up, wind catches it. Hey, <whistles> gone. Dive bombs into the trees. Hattie, like, just crumbles up her kite and throws it on the ground, and we walk off. She's like, I'm not going to go through that. Right? We, the wind? It's this wonderful force that can destroy houses and level towns. We can feel it, but we can't see it. We don't, as Jesus says, know where it comes, and we don't know clearly from our kite flying skills, know where it's going to go next. Jesus is using this symbolism directly following his last revelation to expand upon what it means to be a part of the kingdom. See, the the Jews had long believed that entrance into the kingdom would be restrictive only for a few, and Jesus seems to confirm that and honestly double down on that with his last statement. Right? In other parts of, of Gospels, Jesus uses phrases like, the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. Those who find it are few. Or it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. I always love it when really smart people are like, I think they meant like a camel, like a gate. I, here's the deal. You know what Jesus is saying? Impossible. That's what he's saying he himself seems to say, listen, this thing that I'm building, it's incredibly exclusive. But see, the Jews believed that that exclusivity was based not on a spiritual birth, but on a physical birth. On who you were born to, what family, what nation, what place you were born into. In their mind, the kingdom of God was reserved for God's people that he had chosen his ethnic people on the earth let me lay this flat for you that vision of the kingdom would exclude all of us we would be apart from it they held hope in their lineage oftentimes with pride and contempt for others that were less fortunate But when Jesus goes on and says in verse 7, Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again, because the wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from and where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. The word used for spirit and wind here are the same word. Numa. In the Hebrew, it's ruach. It means breath, it means wind, it means spirit. They're always used interchangeably. Jesus is saying that the entrance into the kingdom is not defined by our world's earthly, rigid standards that we like to put in place. But instead, it is driven along by the powerful, miraculous, even strange working of the kingdom. Listen, much has been made of things that have been done in the name of Christianity that have been terrible. The name of Jesus have been usurped not to love our neighbors, but in many ways oftentimes, but to defame them, to commit acts that Jesus would have rebuked immediately that he actually rescued people out of having said that the true message of christianity is seen here by jesus that the spirit of god is sweeping across the face of the whole earth this wind that blows not confined to ancient palestine and a specific ethnic people is why mercy's door exists in muskutah because the miraculous work of the Spirit led it. It's why we're planting another church in Georgetown, Texas. It's why this past week my gospel community got to gather with other brothers and sisters of Christ from Ukraine and pray for them and with them. It's the, the message of Jesus that has gone out, that has founded hospitals across the world and nonprofits that serve and love people in dire needs that have convicted and sent men and women to give their lives away all over the world in order to love people like Christ has loved them and to invite them into His kingdom. This is one of the core messages of Christ. This inclusivity. It's also one of the core reasons why Jesus was killed. It's not just that he spent so much time with sinners and sufferers. It's that he spent so much time with outsiders and Gentiles and pagans. Some of his most beautiful miracles are with Samaritans and Syrians and even Romans. The kingdom of God is exclusive. Meaning it is impossible by our own power to enter. But God has also promised the opportunity would come by His grace and that it would be available to everyone. Listen, I, I, I think I need, need to say this. Most of us in this church right now and in the American church would say something like this. Yeah, we get that. Of course, we're not Jews. We, we know that the, you know, the gospel is sufficient for anyone. But gosh, in our day-to-day lives, do you believe it? One, do you believe it's sufficient for you in your darkest moments, in the depths of your worst sin? And two, do you believe it for those that are the most helpless that you know? The most hopeless that you know? Or do you follow the logic of the world that it seems when someone gets far enough down a path apart from the Lord, cut your losses and move on? Because Jesus says that the The wind, the Spirit, His Spirit blows like a hurricane and is not controlled or compelled by our earthly logic. It cannot even be overcome by the depths of our sin. When He blows, when He moves, He is powerful to save anyone. The kingdom... Is absolutely impossible and yet assured it is exclusive yet open to everyone and finally it is simple and yet unfathomable in September of 2017 I proposed to my wife and uh, I'll tell you the story one time I thought I was doing something really clever and then it made my wife cry not happy tears but sad tears while i was proposing to her so um, just advice for young men that may exist out here uh, that's not what you're aiming for okay she did say yes eventually okay but after i asked her she answered within probably five seconds she knew that i had already had the ring at that point in time though i tried to hide it we talked about being engaged but it took a few seconds But as I waited for the words yes to come out of her mouth, it felt like an eternity. Not five seconds, maybe five days it felt like. As Jesus is telling Nicodemus by whose power one must enter the kingdom and who is allowed to enter into the kingdom, but as of yet he has not told him how they can enter into the kingdom. It must have felt like days to Nicodemus waiting for Jesus to finally say specifically, how? Jesus goes on and he rebukes Nicodemus. He says to him when Nicodemus says, how can these things be? How does it actually work, Jesus? Jesus? You say be born again. You say that God has promised it. I get it. You say that the wind blows wherever it will. It's not just us. It's whoever the Spirit goes to. But how? How do we get in? Jesus first rebukes him. He says, are you not the teacher of Israel? And yet, you do not understand. See? All of this scholarship. All of this theology. But you've missed me. You've missed the fact that by me, Though the things are impossible with man, they are possible with God. Nicodemus probably hanging on that rebuke and waiting. Please, Jesus, I get it. I don't know what I'm talking about, but will you tell me how? And then finally, Jesus says it in verse 14. He says, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Jesus tells a story that would have been immediately understandable to Nicodemus. It's a, a story in Israel's past that's captured in Numbers chapter 21. Israel is wandering in the desert. This is just after the death of Aaron, the, 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 the first high priest, if you will, of Israel. And as they're wandering, waiting still to get into the Promised Land. This is, this is days after, by the way, God has just miraculously delivered Israel from the Canaanites who wanted to end them. And we read that Israel began to grumble against the Lord. They began to complain. Even though God was still feeding them miraculous bread from heaven... Even though there was still a pillar of fire by night and cloud by day that led them, they grumbled against God and His ways. And and gosh, see this. This is always the heart of sin. The drumbeat of sin always sounds like God isn't really as good as He says He is. Or my ways are better than His. Or what I really need in life is For my plans to be fulfilled. We're told that God punishes Israel with fiery serpents. I want you to hear this. I hate snakes. They're the devil. It's biblical. Argue with me. That's all right. I'll point you back to Genesis 3. Okay, when I see them, like there was like one, I wasn't sure if it was a worm or a snake but I got like the longest handled, I know I sound like a coward, but I own it. Jesus loves me. Like the longest handled, like shovel I could get, and I had like this stance where I was trying to lean back, you know, and I chopped its little head off and I felt like Braveheart. But I hate snakes, and they're the devil. If I ever come upon a fiery snake, I will die. Immediately. Israel was in trouble fiery serpents came upon them and began to bite them and they died i don't know if they died from the fire or from the snake bite or from seeing a fiery serpent but they were dying and israel cries out and says please moses will you go to the lord we have sinned against him will you go to him and will you all will you plead with him that he would give us grace Think about this again. The people of God, after rebelling and doubting His goodness, are dying because of their sin at the hands of a serpent. Do you hear the story of all humanity there? The people of God, in God's presence, dwelling in His glory, reject His goodness. And because of their sin, they are condemned to death at the hands of a serpent that is set on their destruction. But just like our story, Israel's story doesn't end there. Instead, it ends with those beautiful words, but God. God makes a way. He commands Moses to make a bronze serpent, to place it upon a pole, to raise it up. And whoever looks at it will be healed and live. Numbers tells us, literally, for all who looked toward it were saved. But you know what that phrase implies? That there were some that didn't. See, the the solution to life for them, the ability to enter into the promised land, so simple. All they had to do was believe and look to what was raised up before them. And Jesus says to Nicodemus, the entrance into the kingdom of God, eternal life, abundant life, to be in the presence of God for all eternity. The way to access this new birth that is from above is just as simple. All you have to do is believe and look. But while the action is simple, the object of our gaze is unfathomable. Jesus says that like the serpent on the pole, the Son of Man must be lifted up. The word here is the Greek word for exalted that we use both physically and spiritually. The Son of Man must be exalted. He must be worshipped. He must be brought great exaltation and glory because He deserves it, but He must also be physically lifted up above earth. Roman crosses stood seven to twelve feet up in the air. Their captives would be lashed or nailed to them, and they would be made to hang there as they slowly died of exhaustion or loss of blood or asphyxiation. And these crosses would be set outside the city walls near the main entrances along the, the roads so that all that would enter into the city would raise their eyes up. They would see the ones being hung there and executed, and they would worship Rome, knowing that Rome had the power to execute judgment on all that they deemed unworthy. And yet Jesus promises that He, the Son of Man, the long-awaited Messiah, very God in human flesh, Would for the sake of all those dying underneath of the curse of their own sin. That he would be nailed and lashed to a Roman pole. That he would be lifted high in the air for all to see. And that whoever would cast their eyes on him. Whoever would be led as they see him to worship in the presence of God would be saved, would enter into the kingdom of His goodness and grace. The how for us is so simple. Look and believe. And yet it's unfathomable what we look at. Because Christ, the perfect One, the King, is upon a cross dying for us saving our lives through his death you know one of my favorite movies is saving private ryan and it took me i confess probably five or six times to just get through the d-day scene if you've seen it i'd watch it for a while and just it would just be it was it was exhausting watching the landing on d-day and just the carnage that took place But when I finally watched it all the way through, one of the things that I was struck by was how long it took to get to the title character. How long to finally see the face of Private Ryan. How long it took them and the the obstacles and the loss of life that it took these soldiers to finally get to him and get him home to safety. Safety. And what I always thought of, because there's this scene in the beginning and the end where he's standing face to face with so many of the gravestones, including men that gave their life for him, is if he ever really fully understood the story before it got to his story. If he knew the scene after scene of death and difficulty and loss and suffering for the other men that tried to get their way to him to save him. The truth is that we only experience the end of the story. We only experience our eyes being fixed on Jesus. The end where we're finally saved. But the magnitude, the the depth, the miracle of what it has taken to deliver us from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of His glorious light is Enormous. It's beyond our comprehension. And it's why we gather and cast our eyes on Scripture so that we can begin to fathom it. So you and I again this morning need to hear the words of Jesus. Whether for the first time or for the thousandth time. The Lord has come for us. Apart from Him, we are dead and dying under the curse of our own sin. We are incapable of escaping it. We are incapable. It is impossible for us by our own work, no matter how hard, to move into the kingdom of God. But God has moved heaven and earth to change everything. He's given Himself over to the punishment due to us so that rather than we dying as enemies, we would live eternally as beloved sons and daughters. So just as, as Jesus said to Nicodemus, believe. Look to Him and believe. And listen, you're going you're to say, but, but, but Michael, you don't know what I've done. You don't know where my marriage is right now. You don't know what I'm wrestling through right now. You don't know. I don't care and neither does Jesus. Because the command of look to Him and believe is don't worry about you. But Michael, it's impossible. Yeah, but God promised it. But it's, it's exclusive. Not for me. No, it's available to everyone. But I I can't comprehend that Jesus would do it, but He did. And now He simply calls us to believe. Because whoever believes, whoever looks on Him, whoever casts their eyes, as it says in verse 15, whoever believes in Him may have eternal life. This is the good news of the Gospel. The kingdom is big and high, and holy, and feels distant, and yet, through Jesus, He has brought it intimately near to us. Let's pray.